Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. This past year, I watched the TV series Mad Men, which depicts life in the 1960s and 70s in America, especially focusing on gender dynamics. And I thought that one of the most striking bits of dialogue, and it wasn't really emphasized, so at a a different time in my life, it might have just gone right past me without me even noticing. But it was this scene that was set in about 1965 in New York City when the civil rights movement was just starting to really pick up steam. And a woman, a white woman, is talking about how she is not allowed to join certain clubs or be served in certain restaurants or get a room at a hotel or get a credit card. And many jobs aren't available to her. And even in the job she currently has, she's paid far less than her male counterparts all because she's a woman. And she's saying this to a group of men, male co-workers. And one of them says in response in a really jeering, mocking way, he says, what, you want a women's march? And the show does such a great job of creating the world that you can feel how to them that just sounded utterly preposterous, a women's march. There hadn't been demonstrations for women's rights since the days of the suffragettes. And as we learned in Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, those feminists, the suffragettes, were looked down on in the 1950s and 60s. But so as a viewer, you also have this sense of dramatic irony, realizing, oh my gosh, the women's movement was about to start, but they didn't even know it yet. So with that historical context in mind, that the women's movement was coming in the 60s, but they didn't know it. We're going to start today's episode with a recording from 1970, when that idea of a women's march had become a reality, and thousands of women were taking to the streets to demand equal rights. I wouldn't have admitted the equality and inequality in my own life, even though I was continually discriminated against in journalism. Journalism, which allows women to write about women, and black people to write about black people and keep the editorial decisions in white male hands. I would not have admitted my own inequality, even though I had been refused apartments by landlords who would not rent to women and refused access to supposedly public places. I would not admit it, even though I had been refused full participation in politics. Now, thanks to the spirit of equality in the air and to the work of many of my more foresighted sisters, I no longer accept society's judgment that my group is second class. That was Gloria Steinem in a speech at a Women's Liberation March in about 1970. And today we are going to read a similar speech by Steinem called Living the Revolution. But before we start that discussion, I want to introduce my reading partner today, Amy Powell. Hi, Amy. Hi, Amy. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you so much for joining me and um, reading this and discussing it. So, Let's start out by giving getting our listeners acquainted with Gloria Steinem. She's such a fascinating woman and a cultural icon. So Amy, can you start us off with like the beginning of Steinem's life? Sure. Okay. Um, Gloria Steinem was born on March 25th, 1934 in Toledo, Ohio, the daughter of Ruth and Leo Steinem. 
Her mom was Presbyterian, mostly of German and some Scottish descent. Her father was Jewish, the son of immigrants from Germany and Poland. Her paternal grandmother, Pauline Perlmutter Steinem, was a suffragette who worked for women's rights in many different capacities and also rescued many members of her family from the Holocaust. The Steinems lived and traveled in a trailer from which Leo carried out his trade as a roaming antiques dealer. Before Steinem was born, her mother Ruth, then age 34, had a nervous breakdown, which left her unable to walk, trapped in delusional fantasies that occasionally turned violent. She changed from someone that Steinem described as energetic, fun-loving, and book-loving into someone who was afraid to be alone, who could not hang on to reality long enough to hold a job, and who could rarely concentrate enough to read a book. Ruth spent long periods in and out of sanatoriums for people dealing with mental illness. Steinem was 10 years old when her parents finally separated in 1944. Her father went to California to find work while she and her mother continued to live together in Toledo. Steinem did not attribute her parents' divorce to male chauvinism on her father's part. She claims to have understood and never blamed him for the breakup. Nevertheless, the impact of these events had a formative effect on her personality. While her father, a traveling salesman, had never provided much financial stability to the family, his exit aggravated their situation. Steinem concluded that her mother's inability to hold on to a job was evidence of general hostility towards working women. She also concluded that the general apathy of doctors toward her mother emerged from a similar anti-woman prejudice. Years later, Steinem described her mother's experience as pivotal to her understanding that women lacked social and political equity. Steinem attended Smith College, from which she received her A.B. magna cum laude. In 1957, Steinem had an abortion. The procedure was performed by Dr. John Sharp, a British physician, when abortion was still illegal. Years later, Steinem dedicated her memoir, My Life on the Road, to him. She wrote, Dr. John Sharp of London, who in 1957, a decade before physicians in England could legally perform an abortion for any reason other than the health of the woman, took the considerable risk of referring for an abortion a 22-year-old American on her way to India, knowing only that she had broken an engagement at home to seek an unknown fate, he said, You must promise me two things. First, you will not tell anyone my name. Second, you will do what you want to do with your life. Steinem's first serious assignment as a journalist was a 1962 article about the way in which women are forced to choose between a career and marriage. This article is, as listeners will remember, on the same topic as The Feminine Mystique and was published a year before Frieden's book was published. In 1963, while working on an article for Huntington Hartford's Show magazine, Steinem went undercover as a Playboy bunny at the New York Playboy Club. The article, published in 1963 as A Bunny's Tale, featured a photo of Steinem in bunny uniform 
and detailed how women were treated at those clubs. And you can still see that photo online if you look it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's fun to look it up. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> Steinem has maintained that she is proud of the work she did publicizing the exploitative working conditions of the bunnies, and especially the sexual demands made of them, which were barely legal. But for a brief period after the article was published, Steinem was unable to land other assignments. In her words, this was because I had now become a bunny, and it didn't matter why. Steinem was often referred to as the pretty one in the feminist movement, and some tried to dismiss her because of her looks, as if a woman couldn't be pretty and an activist, or pretty and a journalist. Maybe her looks worked in her favor in some cases, perhaps to get in the door with politicians or others in seats of power, but I would imagine that was due more to her intelligence and wit, her skills of persuasion and listening than to her being attractive. In 1969, Steinem covered an abortion speak-out for New York Magazine, which was held in a church basement in Greenwich Village, New York. She felt what she called a big click at the speak-out, and later said she didn't begin her life as an active feminist until that day. As she recalled, abortion is supposed to make us a bad person, but I must say I never felt that. I used to sit and try and figure out how old the child would be, trying to make myself feel guilty, but I never could. Speaking for myself, I knew it was the first time I had taken responsibility for my own life. I wasn't going to let things happen to me. I was going to direct my life, and therefore it felt positive. But still, I didn't tell anyone, because I knew that out there it wasn't. She also said, in later years, if I'm remembered at all, it will be for inventing a phrase like reproductive freedom. As a phrase, it includes the freedom to have children or not to, so it makes it possible for us to make a coalition. In 1969, she published an article, After Black Power, Women's Liberation, which brought her to national fame as a feminist leader. As such, she campaigned for the Equal Rights Amendment, testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee in its favor in 1970. And we're going to talk about the Equal Rights Amendment on our very next episode. So that will be exciting. She was frustrated already in 1970 that it hadn't passed. So imagine how frustrated she is now. Oof. Um, that same year in 1970, she published her essay on a utopia of gender equality, which was called What It Would Be Like If Women Win in Time magazine. On July 10th, 1971, Steinem was one of over 300 women who founded the National Women's Political Caucus, including such notables as Bella Abzug, Betty Friedan, and Shirley Chisholm. As a co-convener of the caucus, she delivered the speech addressed to the women of America, stating in part, quote, this is no simple reform. It really is a revolution. Sex and race, because they are easy and visible differences, have been the primary ways of organizing human beings into superior and inferior groups and into the cheap labor on which this system still depends. We are talking about a society in which there will be no roles other than those chosen or those earned. We are really talking about humanism, 
end quote. In 1972, she co-founded the feminist-themed magazine Ms. alongside several other founding editors. Its 300,000 test copies sold out nationwide in eight days, and within weeks, Ms. Magazine had received 26,000 subscription orders and over 20,000 reader letters. And if listeners want to look at the cover of the first episode of Ms. Magazine, you can see it on our Facebook or Instagram accounts, and that's at Be Down Patriarchy, where we post visuals and other supplemental content all the time. And yeah, if you want to hop on there this week, then you can see the first cover of Ms. Magazine. Um, and also, it's worth talking about the title, Ms. Um, I don't know that I'd ever really thought about it, honestly, um, until... Just a few years ago, you know, I you hear your whole life like some women are miss and some are misses, but then there's this weird in between thing, and <laughs> and that was a, a really political, very carefully chosen title for the magazine, right? Because men don't have a, a distinguishing title to announce whether they're married or not, and so it, it's a political act for a woman to refuse to be defined by her marital status which means, you know, whether she, whether or not she belongs to a man because a boy or a man doesn't do that. So hence the title Ms. Um, in 1976, the first women only Passover Seder was held in Esther M. Bronner's New York City apartment and led by Bronner with 13 women attending, including Steinem. Anyway, jumping ahead a little bit, in 1984, Steinem was arrested along with a number of members of Congress and civil rights activists for disorderly conduct outside the South African embassy while protesting against South African apartheid. Um, at the outset of the Gulf War in 1991, Steinem, along with prominent feminist Kate Millett and others, publicly opposed the invasion in the Middle East. Uh, during the Clarence Thomas sexual harassment scandal in 1991, Steinem was vocal in her support for Anita Hill. Steinem married once at the age of 66. Uh, Steinem is still with us, and she's still vocal and active, and she lives in New York City. So that is a bit about Gloria Steinem. Um, one last thing by way of introduction, and then we'll get into the speech, is this. And I, I just wanted to note, again, where this speech comes in the historical timeline. Um, remember that we just read Polly Murray's work, Jane Crow and the Law, that article about Title VII in 1965. And then last week, we just discussed Francis Beale's article, Double Jeopardy to be Black and Female, which was published in 1969. And we talked a little bit about the civil rights movement and how it inspired women and trained women to um, start the women's movement. And it's similar to that pattern in the 19th century where the anti-slavery movement started the women's movement that led to the, you know, to women's right to vote in the 19th Amendment. Um, in both cases, in the 19th and the 20th century, it was a it was a messy process where too frequently white women would talk about quote unquote women's rights, but what they meant was white women. And they didn't really have women of color on their radar. And so before I read this speech, I thought, like, I'm not sure. I hope that Steinem as a she's a Jewish woman, but considered a, a white woman in society. And I, I wondered if she would mention racism and include um, black and indigenous and women of color 
um, in her speech, and she did several times. And my understanding as I read more is that Steinem really has always had an inclusive, all-encompassing vision for the feminist movement. Am I right in that, Amy, and what you've read? I think so. I think she truly did have that in her mind from the beginning. And when I've read more recent publications that are by her or about her, she continues to have a really broad outlook, uh, a very hopeful outlook. And Steinem highlights this right at the beginning of her speech when she says, quote, we are spending this time together considering the larger implications of a movement that some call feminist, but should more accurately be called humanist, a movement that is an integral part of rescuing this country from its old, expensive patterns of elitism, racism, and violence, end quote. Um, And I pulled that quote right out because I loved it. Um, Mm. I love that Steinem says feminism is really a humanist movement, gets everybody involved right from the beginning. And she connects gender discrimination to other forms of oppression and prejudice. So the next part of Steinem's speech that I wanted to highlight is this one. Quote, the first problem for all of us, men and women, is not to learn, but to unlearn. We are filled with the popular wisdom of several centuries just past, and we are terrified to give it up. Patriotism means obedience. Age means wisdom. Woman means submission. Black means inferior. These are preconceptions embedded so deeply in our thinking that we honestly may not know that they are there. And I mentioned this, the unlearning. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's a really big one. I think unlearning takes a tremendous amount of work a lot of time, a lot of energy, and really a lot of self-awareness. It's constant work. It's ongoing work. For me, I don't think the work will ever end. I think I'll be undoing and unlearning till the day I die. Okay. One part that I really loved from this speech. And there were so many. This this mm-hmm. speech is so great. Um, one is this. I'll just read the quote. Quote, unfortunately, authorities who write textbooks are sometimes subject to the same popular wisdom as the rest of us. They gather their proof around it and end by becoming the theoreticians of the status quo. Using the most respectable of scholarly methods, for instance, English scientists proved definitively that the English were descended from the angels while the Irish were descended from the apes. It was beautifully done, complete with comparative skull measurements, and it was a rationale for the English domination of the Irish for more than a hundred years. I try to remember that when I'm reading Arthur Jensen's current and very impressive work on the limitation of black intelligence or when I'm reading Lionel Tiger on the inability of women to act in groups, end quote. So that, I mean, that kind of follows on your topic of unlearning, right, Amy? And Mm -hmm. um, that there are these um, intellectuals in society, and there still are, right, who are not aware of their biases that they've picked up from the world, and then they just... 
that bias forms a nugget around which they bring in data to prove this point that, you know, in retrospect, a couple hundred years later, we look back and think, how could anyone have believed that? And yet everybody did, because especially if there's some, you know, recognized, respected figure who's touting this, you know, it's actually nonsense, but it seems legitimate at the time, then people mm-hmm. believe it. Yeah. Okay. So the next quote that I pulled out of the speech that I really like is this one. Quote, every day we see small, obvious truths that we had missed before. Our histories, for instance, have generally been written for and about white men. Inhabited countries were discovered when the first white male set foot there, and most of us learned more about any one European country than we did about Africa and Asia combined. Too many of us have been allowed from a good education to believe that everything from political power to scientific discovery was the province of white males. I don't know about Vassar, but at Smith, we learned almost nothing about women. So I've got to just say that I was stunned when I read that. Um, That is the moment in the speech where my jaw dropped. And there's a lot of stuff in here that, you know, could make your jaw drop. But this one, I just came to a standstill. Here is Steinem. She is a student at a women's college, Smith an institution created so that women could have access to higher education. And she is taught, quote, almost nothing, end quote, (laughs) about women. That is astonishing to me. So Steinem talks about myths that are still believed about women. The first being that women are biologically inferior to men. The second is that women are already being treated equally in society. She says they are not. Here's what she says. Quote, In many parts of the country, New York City, for instance, a woman has no legally guaranteed right to rent an apartment, buy a house, get accommodations in a hotel, or be served in a public restaurant. She can be refused simply because of her sex. In some states, women cannot own property, and get longer jail sentences for the same crime. Women on welfare must routinely answer humiliating personal questions. Male welfare recipients do not. A woman is the last to be hired, the first to be fired. Equal pay for equal work is the exception. Equal chance for advancement, especially at upper levels or at any level with authority over men, is rare enough to be displayed in a museum. (laughs) It's a great quote. Mm, It is. Yeah. Um, You know, what I admire so much about Steinem is her desire to listen and empathize and to encourage peace and cooperation in our world. I think she likely would not agree with all of my beliefs, and I don't agree with all of her stances, but I have great confidence that she would be willing to listen to me and to try to understand what I believe and why I believe it. And I just feel like that is such a great lesson from her, Mm -hmm. listening to one another and working to understand one another is to me, a critical component of being a humanist. And I think is 
essential to the rebuilding process that needs to happen in cooperation with men. Mm, I absolutely agree. The next part that I wanted to share is this quote. Steinem says, quote, the whole system reinforces this feeling of being a mere appendage. It's hard for a woman to realize just how full of self-doubt we become as a result, end quote. Mm-hmm. So that word appendage really stood out to me. You know, that means that you you don't have real power of your own and sovereignty where you can count on like, if I do this, then I can count on, you know, more or less, these are the consequences of my own actions. I can't control anybody else's actions. Like, um, so I yes. think it just creates anxiety if you're always at the mercy or the whim of somebody that you're trying to please. So absolutely. Well, you're a secondary citizen. And, you know, it's this, this person at the top of the heap that's making all of the decisions for you and about you. And mm. if they happen to not like what you're doing, I mean, that, that is about self-worth if you're be, being given that message the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really, you don't even have a place, like you don't have a place at the table and you don't really matter. Um, I mean, I did bring that up as kind of a feeling in school, like, Mm, am I really just in the way? So should I just maybe leave? (laughs) Oh, gosh. No. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. So the last quote that I wanted to discuss from Steinem's speech is this one. Quote, Anthropologist Jeffrey Korer discovered that the few peaceful human tribes had a common characteristic. Sex roles were not polarized. Boys weren't taught that manhood depended on aggression. And girls weren't taught that womanhood depended on submission. End quote. Hmm. I think that when we allow men and women to work in partnership we find more fluidity in family roles and more fulfillment too. And I just think of the benefits that would have for society and for children. That's so powerful. Um, And it actually, if I can read one more quote, it actually reminds me of um, just one last quote from the speech where Steinem says, quote, For those who still fear that women's liberation involves some loss of manhood, let me quote from the Black Panther Code. Certainly, if the fear with which they are being met is any standard, the Panthers are currently the most potent male symbol of all. In Service the Time, Bobby Seals writes, and now Steinem is quoting the Black Panther Code, quote, "'Where there's a panther house, we try to live socialism.'" When there's cooking to be done, both brothers and sisters cook. Both wash the dishes. The sisters don't just serve and wait on the brothers. A lot of black nationalist organizations have the idea of relegating women to the role of serving their men, and they relate this to black manhood. But a real manhood is based on humanism and is not based on any form of oppression. End wow. Quote. Wow. Isn't that great? I just want to post that everywhere, that quote where he says, real manhood is based on humanism and is not based on any form of oppression. Because, mm-hmm. And it accomplishes what you just talked about, Amy, which is enabling all human beings 
to be the fullest expressions of themselves. And then like you said, then it enriches humanity as well, because we get the benefit of everybody's gifts, right? Mm -hmm. In the sciences, in the medical field, in teaching, like we all benefit from everybody being their best selves and not Mm -hmm. having people just kind of trapped in, in boxes. Well, awesome. We're coming to the end then. And um, as we're at the end of the speech, uh, just one more thing is I want us to hear what a major takeaway is for you, Amy. Uh, I would say that Steinem actually sums it up beautifully when she says women's liberation really is men's liberation too. Uh, I think if we can let go of our old expensive patterns we actually open up more options and more possibilities to our lives. We would have access to more people's creativity and ideas. I think it's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, as a person who doesn't always love change, I can understand a reluctance to shake up the status quo. It is uncomfortable for me at times. But this is where I feel like we can emulate Steinem's example of being empathic and kind. If we respectfully listen to one another about fears that are preventing us from releasing those expensive patterns, we may be able to help one another move past these fears and create a more fulfilling and peaceful world. Mm, I just love that. I love that perspective and that, that positive, hopeful perspective. So I just want to leave that as the last word. I love it. Um, Well, thanks again, Amy, so much for being here. I learned so much from this speech and from your perspective and just so enjoyed having you on, on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 